0: Welcome back to The Vatican Briefing, National Catholic Reporters' podcast covering Pope Francis, the Vatican, and the big decisions facing the global Catholic Church. I'm Joshua McElwee, the reporter's news editor. And hello, I'm Christopher White, the reporter's Vatican correspondent. We've got something really quite special for you this week. Chris and I are going to take you into the storied halls of the Vatican's powerful dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith for an exclusive interview with Archbishop Charles Shakluna. Shakluna, who is the Archbishop of Malta and one of the Catholic Church's leading investigators of clergy sexual abuse, spoke with us about Pope Francis' efforts to prevent abuse and cover-up. The Archbishop also reiterated his recent unexpected call that the Church might consider ending the requirement that Catholic priests remain celibate. That's coming up quick, but before we get to that, Chris and I have a lot to talk about this week. Chris, first of all, we're together in person. This is kind of fun. It is. Welcome back to Rome, Josh. Thank you. We're speaking on Friday, January 25th. I came to Rome this week to join Chris for a special audience, Pope Francis Granted, to about 150 journalists who regularly cover the Vatican on Monday. It was wonderful to be with the Pope. We were in the Sala Clementina at the Vatican's Apostolic Palace, able to see him in person. He spent a full hour with us journalists. He gave us a talk, but then greeted each of us one by one. It was really a lovely event, very personal. Many of us have traveled with the Pope in places across the world. And he called us his companions on the voyage. I'm really glad to have been there. I don't know, Chris, how you saw it from the outside, what it looked like to you.
1: Yeah, it was uh, an event that I think, uh, you know, the Association of International Journalists Accredited to the Vatican had long been seeking. You know, the Pope has addressed the foreign press club here in Italy before, and past Popes have, in some capacity, met the press in various ways. But as you know well, Josh, you were part of this. You know, many journalists had been seeking an audience for the Pope specifically to address Vatican Journalists. And after 10 years, it finally happened. I think there were some behind-the-scene efforts (laughs) from some of our colleagues that made this finally come
0: to fruition. It was really lovely, Um, and we're we're grateful to the Pope, we're grateful to the work of the leaders of that group of journalists who help us here in Rome. It's also been a very busy week because it's also been the week of prayer for Christian unity. Chris, you wrote about that in your column for National Catholic Reporter at ncronline.org about really the kickoff of the event at Rome's main Methodist Church, following through this week with all various events. What's it been like here?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the week of prayer for Christian unity has been taking place for over a century. But I think, at least from my perspective, with the the Synod happening in, in the recent year, there's been a real focus on ecumenism. So I think it's given renewed energy to this movement. So I just kind of wanted to provide our readers with a snapshot of these various activities. It's Catholics, Methodists, Lutherans, all sorts of, you know, Christian communities and congregations here in Rome this week. So sort of the two of the, the main storylines that I focused on in my column was the fact that as you mentioned, on Sunday, the main Methodist church here in Rome, Pont San Angelo, invited Sister Natalie Beccar, who's the number two official at the Vatican Synod office, to preach. I spoke with the head of the Methodist Office for Relations with the Catholic Church here in Rome, and he said that this church has a long tradition of inviting leaders from other Christian communities to speak on this Sunday during the Week of Christian Unity. This was the first time that a senior Vatican official who's a woman was invited to do so and accepted the request. So I think it was, you know, a bit of a a newsworthy moment for Sister Natalie and for the Methodist community. Uh, And then we also have in town over 50 Catholic and Anglican bishops who have come together in pairs from their respective areas from around the world, and they were commissioned to go forth in unity last night at a a special prayer service at the Papal Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls. And Josh, you were there for this occasion.
0: Yeah, it was really lovely to see Pope Francis together with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Obviously, they clearly have a very nice rapport with one another. Each gave a little homily reflection at this ecumenical Vesper service at which they were sending these bishop pairs forward. There was a brief moment in the event that was quite interesting. It was interrupted by two women from Pita who were protesting or asking that the Catholic Church would stop endorsing or blessing bullfighting. It wasn't quite clear at the moment what was happening or why this was becoming the center of the event. It was interesting. It happened quickly. I don't think anyone toward the front of the basilica even really noticed what was going on, and the the ceremony kind of went on without any notice. What I found most interesting was seeing uh, Francis, 87 years old, obviously a bit limited in, in his capabilities, still very involved in the service. At the end, we could tell that he was asking the people around him that he wanted to stay longer. He got up to greet each of the bishop pairs that were being sent forth and then brought forward to the first file of seating in the basilica to greet all of the different various ecumenical representatives. It was nice to see the Pope kind of really engaged, and clearly this is something, this ecumenical relationship, or building forth the Christian unity, something that really isn't dear to him and something he really wants to support. So it was quite a nice experience.
1: Just a year ago almost, was the one-year anniversary of when Pope Francis and Archbishop Welby, along with the moderator of the Church of Scotland, went to South Sudan for this peace pilgrimage, which I think is a marked a historic moment for ecumenical relations. And then last night, you know, we had this commissioning of these Anglican and Catholic bishops, and their journey doesn't end here in Rome, but they're going onward to Canterbury to have a prayer service over the weekend there, so from Rome to Canterbury, quite symbolic. So a very special time here this week, moving from Rome to Canterbury.
0: Well, we might want to pivot here just to discuss why we were talking to Archbishop Shakluna this week. Uh, we had asked for an interview with the Archbishop because we are marking the fifth anniversary of the first of its kind, February 2019 summit at the Vatican, called by Pope Francis for church leaders to discuss clergy sexual abuse, and Archbishop Shakluna, who is someone we've interviewed in the past, was very gracious to accept that interview and to actually have us over to the Dicaster for the Doctrine of the Faith because he was there this week for their plenary meetings in which Dicastery staff and bishop members come together to discuss the needs in front of the dicastery, and kind of the direction they should be taking.
1: Yeah, if we think back just um, you know, five years ago, we were both here for that Clergy Abuse Summit. I think it's probably fair to say that no other event since the Conclave of 2013 has attracted the sort of media from around the world to Rome like that event because it was quite historic. The Pope had called the heads of every bishop's conference from around the world to come to Rome to reckon with abuse, to talk about procedures for preventing abuse. Uh, this came after a series of high profile scandals, fought of former Cardinal McCarrick in the United States, a series of grand jury report investigations in the States, a crisis in Chile. All these things were sort of mounting, uh, and the Pope was, was reckoning with abuse uh, in, a, in a serious way. And so what we wanted to put to the Archbishop was, look, five years ago, the Vatican invested a lot of time and energy to try to get everyone on the same page. What's the result five years into this?
0: And something you'll hear him talk about are kind of some of the major results that happened from the summit, one being the new law in the Church Vos Estes Lux Mundi, which put forth mandatory reporting obligations for all priests and all members of religious orders in the Catholic Church. It also created a new system in an attempt to hold bishops accountable for either abuse or cover-up to empower local archbishops to investigate bishops in their regions accused of abuse or cover-up. And there's another host of things that resulted from that summit that Archbishop Shakluna talks about and tries to explain a bit. We also took the opportunity to ask him about some criticisms of those measures and whether they they go far enough.
1: Yeah, we were in the office that processes and handles all these abuse cases from the world. And I think what we got from the archbishops was a pretty frank assessment of you know, where he sees real progress, but challenges uh,
0: and the sort of changes that still need to be made. Well, that's probably a good point to let you actually hear from Archbishop Shakluna himself. So let's go ahead and take a break. And after the music, we'll be back with our exclusive interview with Archbishop Charles Shakluna from Inside the Vatican's dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Archbishop Shakluna, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing Podcast. We really appreciate having you with us. Thank you for having me. Archbishop, we've asked for this interview specifically to talk about the five-year anniversary of the first of its kind February 2019 summit called by Pope Francis for church leaders to discuss their efforts to confront clergy sexual abuse and better protect minors. Looking back at our reporting on the event, I was struck by the Pope's promise at the end of the summit that the church would decisively confront the abusive minors. Five years on from the summit, what is your overall assessment? How is the church doing? Is there one major success
2: in those five years that you would highlight? Let's start from the positive outcomes of the uh, summit, which was, as you said, in twenty nineteen. The Pope immediately after the summit, the Pope initiated a number of legal reforms, uh, new laws that introduced obligations for disclosure, obligations uh, in every diocese of spaces where people could go to and share their experience, disclose misconduct. He also relaxed certain laws that helped promote more transparency. That was one of the important aspects of the summit. And uh, the main results, I would say, in 2019, a few months after the end of the summit, was a new law which was promulgated ad experimentum, that is, by way of experiment. And the name of this law was Vos Estis Lux Mundi, You are the Light of the World. Now, this law was promulgated for three years, and now we're already five years down the line, and we have now a law which is not ad experimentum anymore, but is now enshrined in the list of laws of the Roman Catholic Church. So the Pope decided to uh, confirm this new law, Vos estis lux mundi, and I think this is one of the main results of the summit And it is very important to note that This law has two sections. The first section is is historical because for the first time there is a recognition of misconduct against vulnerable adults that is put on the radar. There is also the concept of cover-up as a crime in church law. But then there is also an obligation to disclose misconduct. There is a protection for people who disclose misconduct. But there is also, importantly, a duty of care for victims and their families. These are all very important principles. Another important principle, which is then towards the end of this law, is that we will cooperate with the civil authorities. Now, the second, this is the first bit of Vos estis Lux Mundi, which is important because it is addressed to the universal church, the Latin rite the Eastern rites churches, and it also imposes on every diocese structures where people can go and feel welcome and comfortable with sharing their narrative. This is what the law states. This is what the law wants. The second bit of the law of Ossestis Lux Mundi, which has now been confirmed, is holding leadership accountable. So when a person in leadership, and this is obviously a reductive way of presenting the whole list of leadership types that we have in the church, from cardinals, bishops, religious superiors, lay leaders of uh, lay movement. So this list of leadership, if they are accused, there is a special procedure that ensures and guarantees accountability, but also responsibility. It is important because one of the dangers is that people who need to process cases will obviously not do anything if they are the people accused. So I think that the second part of Vossestis Lux Mundi is also important because it gives us a procedure how to investigate people in leadership. Now I'm talking about a law because you also asked me where are we? Now a law is no magic. You, You create laws so the, the 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 law expresses the will of the, in our case, the supreme legislator, the Pope. It also corresponds to a need. But there is a process which is accepting the law, assimilating the law. Now that takes time. And it is, uh, if you look at the graph of the universal church, you may find that there are pockets where the law is not on the radar. So I think that The fact that we have the law is not like we've done our duty and this is like a job well done. And we have a law which is an instrument. Whether we use it or not will depend on people in leadership, but also on the communities. Archbishop, you you talk about the reception of it and and the challenge of that in in
1: certain places. And and one thing that you also note was that it was historic when the law came out, what it accomplished, what it put into into law. There are some critics who say, though, that the very structure relies on bishops holding other bishops accountable, and that is some form of self-policing. How do you respond to those that are concerned that 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 structure in itself
2: doesn't allow for the accountability that's necessary? If we're talking about misconduct that is also a criminal offence. We're not only talking about something that has an in-house impact. If there is, for example, a member in leadership or even clergy, because the first part of Vosestis Lux Mundi Mundi does not only concern clergy, but even lay people. And and most of the list of misconduct under Vosestis Lux Mundi are criminal crimes in civil jurisdictions. So we're talking about an egregious misconduct that is not only a crime or delict in in the structure and legal framework of the church, but it's also a crime in the civil society. So there are levels of accountability that are not only sort of in-house. And uh, I think that the call made by Vosestis Lux Mundi that there is cooperation with the civil authorities and that legislation on disclosure... In what technically is called domestic law, the national law, are respected, is this sort of attempt to guarantee that this not does not remain in house or another instance of cover up? Because Vosestis Lux Mundistes itself actually says this is not good to be complicit with any attempt not to report or to hinder the, the promotion of justice in a case is a crime in itself. And this obviously means that the attitude even towards the cumulative jurisdiction of the state is totally different. It is not antithetical. It's not in polemic with the state. Obviously, the church has an interest to um, ensure that people in leadership, but oh, oh, not only in leadership, but that its communities are safe. Because that is intrinsic to its mission, and not doing that would be not only counterproductive, but a counter-witness. But I think that the guarantee is always the uh, disclosure, not only to the Church, but to the statutory authorities where the case allows for that and, and warrants that.
0: Archbishop, we were honoured to have an interview with you about a year ago at this time, for our newspaper, National Catholic Reporter. And in that interview, you said one thing the Church could do better is follow up with abuse victims. When it receives their reports about how they're being handled, about how the results of their reporting. I'm curious, you know, one thing we've heard mentioned several times is sometimes a bishop will resign from office or the pope will accept his resignation and there's no transparency about the fact that, you know, this person is leaving office because of an abuse inquiry or a misconduct inquiry. Do you have some sort of update on how the Vatican might look at that concern or or treat abuse victims with more transparency about what's happening in their cases?
2: I think that you have to... um approach a case on, on different types of levels. There, there is the public opinion arena, and then there is the important work, uh, which is almost therapeutic, of care of the victims. That is not necessarily on the same level of the public arena. One of the uh, dangers at times is that when we sort of put every case or the details of every case Um, On a very, very public platform, we're re-victimizing people. They they go through the trauma again. Whereas care of victims is done on a level which is uh, probably less public because it needs to heal the person. I am one of those people in the church, I'm not on my own, who say that we need to connect with victims in all phases of the process. The victim has a right to report misconduct. They have a right to give their testimony and to offer their contribution to an investigation. But then they need to be accompanied and to be informed of the outcome of the case. Because that not only respects their dignity, but gives them peace of mind. Now, victims are also resilient. I mean, uh, people who have accompanied victims in civil law cases know that a civil law case doesn't always go the way you want it to go. But if you're accompanied and you're not left alone, you, you, you can actually, you know, accept strictures of statute of limitations and, and burden of proof and all these things that can actually impact the outcome of a criminal investigation or a criminal trial in the civil case. It happens also in a juridical system, which is very complex and very ancient, like the, the canon law system. But I think that the the duty of care, which is now enshrined, and we have to be very grateful for that, in vos this lux mundi, is, is something that we need to foster because lux mundi talks about the care of victims on the physical psychological spiritual level and they don't only meant the, the law does not only mention the victim but also people you know close to the victims their families the, you know the communities and that's a tall order it it is actually very important that when bishops even following the directives of the law institute these spaces, where people can go and feel listened respected with dignity heard taken care of but there is also a structure that then will will accompany these people and it is quite draining it takes time but it has to be done
1: you' traveled the world in investigating clergy abuse cases. And in a recent interview, you talked about the Latin Church's practice of celibacy and expressed a desire that perhaps it might become optional for priests. And I'm just curious, does any of that come from your own investigation into abuse, not drawing a link between abuse and and celibacy, but just perhaps a desire to see priests having
2: stable relationships and the need for that? One of my worries is that people are put in a situation where they are comfortable with a double life. Um, What you learn uh, through experience is that you have to factor in human frailty and the fact that people mature into different situations. They find themselves in a different place psychologically, spiritually. And and I think that we would be, uh, you you know, this is something that uh, the church at the highest authority will have to decide. But I think that it is good that we keep listening to the experience of other churches you know we we have the ori- the churches in the east that have an, a different attitude but this is not to diminish the beauty of celibacy or the the heroic commitment of people who have accepted celibacy as a gift and live it with great heroism with great generosity but it is also an opening i i'm i'm in favor of that but I realise that this will probably take time, but I I think it is good that we discuss it. Um, it, Everybody accepts that this is not a doctrinal issue, although celibacy has a doctrinal underpinning, but so is a married clergy. Also, a beautiful image of Christ the bridegroom. So the sacrament of marriage is also a holy state of life and not incompatible with the priesthood. Although the Vatican Council says that celibacy is really appropriate for the ministry of the priesthood, that is something that is in in the doctrine. But Vatican Council II, for example, was very careful not to put Eastern right clergy who are married on a sort of, you know, uh, second level, a second class type of clergy. I think we have lots of things and lots of wisdom. There are practical issues that will always be uh, important in any discernment. But yes, you realize when you travel a lot and we, we, you meet other people, that people find in themselves in different states of life and this could be also something that worth discussing.
0: Archbishop, we're aware that you have limited time and you need to get back to your meeting today. Maybe we can ask one more question, kind of a bigger picture question. You participated in the Synod in October as the Archbishop of Malta. As the Pope is trying to make the Church more synodal, I'm kind of curious how you see this interplay between a synodal Church and an accountable Church. How do you think a synodal Church can best be an
2: accountable Church? I don't think that there is any option away from accountability. I think that if the church is not accountable, it's not synodal. These are not antitektical, and I don't think that a synodal church would be truly synodal, that is, we're walking together, if we're not caring for each other, and we're not accountable to each other. This is not like holding uh, leadership uh, in a corner, but actually what Pope Francis insists, that leadership is a leadership of service, and that it is a privilege for people in leadership to serve the community and feel that they are accountable not only to Jesus Christ but to their flock and I think it works both ways you know I think that even even members of the church need to take care of each other and accountability is another name for co-responsibility and for caring of each other.
0: Archbishop Sakluna, thank you so much for joining us on the Vatican Briefing today we really appreciate your time and meeting you here at the Dicaster for the Doctor of the Faith. Thank you. so grateful we were able to be joined by Archbishop Charles Shakluna this week. Chris, I was struck by so many points in the interview, and it was a bit brief because the Archbishop was attending this plenary discussion at the Vatican Stichapster for the Doctrine of the Faith, but I was really struck that he did not really back down from his call for the Catholic Church to reconsider its practice of having priests remain celibate in their lives, and also that he, you know, he was careful not to ascribe the practice of celibacy to abuse or to be some sort of causing factor of abuse, but also willing to share kind of his experience of investigating clergy sexual abuse, of being in places across the world and reading the files, and expressing a serious worry about priests living double lives, and perhaps the practice of celibacy could in some fashion lead to that happening.
1: Yeah, Josh, you mentioned that he was here in Rome for this plenary meeting of the dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith, which brings together its members from all over the world. So there are bishops and cardinals here from so many backgrounds, so many countries, various theological (laughs) persuasions. And, you know, had he received any serious pushback for this proposal, it still hasn't seemed to change his mind or his opinion and his willingness to speak out on this, and he's sticking with his gun. So that was certainly notable. And I also, you know, I, I appreciated his reflection about how laws are one thing, but cultural change is another, and and that still remains a challenge.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting that it's hard to imagine a scenario a few years ago where a top leading Vatican official would say these kinds of things, and then beyond that, say them from inside the Vatican and inside the very office that would have used to have been tasked with kind of investigating priests who might have said exactly what he is saying now. The, The church is in a different place now in 2024 than it has been, I think, before. Well, this might be a good place to wrap up today's episode. Thanks a lot for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing. We're recording on a more regular schedule now, so you can look forward to new episodes in your feeds about every other week. In the meantime, you can find our show notes and all of our work at National Catholic Reporter at ncronline.org. And please, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or however you listen. Until next time, you've been briefed.
1: The Vatican Briefing is a production of National Catholic Reporter. John Grosso is your executive producer. Joshua McAlee and Christopher White are your producers and hosts. The editing was done by Angie von Slaughter in conjunction with David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Today's music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast and NCR's Future Media Initiative are made possible in part by the generosity of Bill and Jean Buchanan.